Hello, and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, we are brought to you by the FilmYap. Go check out thefilmyap.com for all things film. They never shut up about movies over there. Now, you can find us on social media at Medium Cool Pod on Facebook. Instagram and Twitter. It's facebook.com backslash medium cool pod. You can also search medium cool pod on Instagram will pop up and at medium cool pod on Twitter. You can also hit me up at Austin Glidden. That's G L I D D E N at Austin Glidden on Twitter. You can uh, let me know how wrong I am about things or how right you think I am about things. Um, I don't know. Or we can just like, you know, talk about things, uh, even non-movie related things. I don't really care, but we can hang out on there. That's cool. Um, so all of that said, uh, you know, today, um, if you remember last week, I mentioned uh, like I couldn't mention what was going to happen today. And it's because uh, today we have Greg Bennick and I'll tell you who he is in a moment, but I couldn't tell you because we hadn't scheduled for sure. Uh, uh, exactly when our conversation was going to happen. So I was a little leery of um, saying we were going to do this just in case something happened. He's writing a book right now on Ernest Becker, the philosopher, and um, he's doing an official biography. <clears throat> and, you know, I, I I know what it's like to have writing deadlines and all those things. And so I was trying to respect his time. But you know what? He made more than enough time, not just one episode, but next week we're going to have a part two with Greg Binnick because he gave me so much time and we had such a great time. We just started talking and talking. And uh, as my favorite conversations do, it became very organic and we were just riffing off of each other. And it was just it was just a really, really great time. I hope you guys enjoy it. So Greg Binnick, this is what's up with this dude. Uh, I was in a band, and I'll tell you a little bit more about this during our conversation, Uh, but I was in a band, he did some spoken word stuff, we crossed paths there, Uh, we talked for a little while, and then we were friends on, uh, I put air quotes around friends, we were friends on social media, right, so Facebook, Instagram, you know, and so on, so, uh, you know, the most we ever really did was like, liked each other's posts, or, you know, maybe commented on each other's posts, things like that. And uh, it wasn't until Holding These Moments, the Bane documentary came out. And just so you know, Greg Binnick is one of the producers uh, on of, um, of Holding These Moments. So once that came out, we kind of reconnected. And uh, yeah, this happened. So, you know, uh, Greg Binnick is uh, not only a, uh, a writer now. He is a keynote speaker. He's a, he's a public speaker. He goes around. He's a juggler. I didn't know that until this conversation. Can't wait for you to hear about that. He's friends with mimes. It's wild. There's a movie or there's a, a video game um, that he was actually involved in. I'll explain that in the episode. Uh, I mean, he's everywhere. But the thing, the thing that uh, most uh, of us hardcore kids would know is he's in a band currently called X Bystander X. But what he's most known for probably is his band trial. They were a 90s hardcore band that went all the way through the 2000s. I think they've had shows as recent as a couple years ago. So, um, you know, trial is just one of those staples in the hardcore scene. This dude's been everywhere. But let me tell you this. There's nothing more interesting than just sitting and listening to Greg talk. That's how I feel. He's one of those guys where he has a certain charisma and, and a certain skill when he speaks that just makes you want to listen. Um, and, and I'll also be honest here too. We don't talk a whole lot about movies on this episode. I'll tell you that right now. Okay. So this is more of just a general conversation. This very easily could have been bonus content were, you know, it not so awesome. Like I really love this conversation. 
that we have, and I hope you guys do as well. Again, hit us up on social media. Let us know what you think. Um, you can uh, also find Greg Benick uh, on social media. Just search for Greg Benick, and he'll pop up on most major platforms, as far as I know. Um, he's, he's, I don't know. He's just such a great guy. So anyways, we have a really great conversation. This dude's hand is in every pot basically with, uh, in terms of like media, he's been an actor, he's written movies, he's produced movies. Uh, he has uh, IMDB page with documentaries and, and, uh, all kinds of stuff. I mean, this dude's everywhere. Um, so for part one, we kind of just uh, have a, a conversation. For part two, we continue that conversation, um, but we also add uh, the film component by the end. We talk about movies a bit, and I ask him what his interests are and how he got into movies and things like that. So please, I hope you enjoy these two conversations. The following week, which is the last Tuesday of the year, it is bet- the Tuesday, uh, the 29th, bet- the Tuesday between Christmas and New Year's, uh, we're going to have part two of our Cassavetes Marathon, which will be number th- numbers three and four, A Woman Under the Influence and the Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Jake Bottelieri is going to come back on with me, and we're going to talk about those two Cassavetes movies because nothing says Christmas like John Cassavetes movies, I'll tell you that right now. Um, it's going to be a bummer. Anyways, uh, <laughs> uh, but definitely go check those out. Go check out A Woman Under the Influence and a, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Um, Criterion Collection put them out. I think they're on Amazon Prime. I think you can rent them on different uh, and buy them on different uh, platforms virtually. Uh, please go check it out. Hey, you know what? Maybe you even, uh, I, I mean, I'm all about people staying in during the pandemic, but if you feel comfortable going to a library or or if if you want to uh, reserve something in the library uh, and just go pick it up, I guarantee they have some Cassavetes movies there. I guarantee, probably, I guess I shouldn't guarantee that, but they probably should have that. If not, you should request it. Anyways, uh, tangent aside, um, in, in uh, a couple of weeks, we are going to be talking, uh, Jake and I are going to be talking about John Cassavetes again. But for today, it's Greg Binnick all the way. This guy is awesome, and I hope you enjoy uh, hearing us talk as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Um, I think that's about it. So I'm just going to go ahead and get to good old Greg. I was in a bank called Barricades. This is the first time that uh, we met. And uh, you guys, or you by yourself, you were doing spoken word stuff and you were touring with, I believe, Glass Hands. Do I have that correct? Um, I think Glass Hands was playing, but I think I might've been on tour. I'm trying to think of who was on that specific tour. Yeah. It might've been Focused Minds maybe. Was it Focused Minds? I can't remember. I, I can't remember. The, like I was trying to find the flyer for it. And it's, even though I have them backlogged somewhere, because I like to keep all the flyers <laughs> for the shows I played, um, and it's gone. Anyways, whoever you were on tour with, you were doing spoken word. And I remember um, I remember that after we were finished playing, like I had no idea who you were, by the way, not, not by name or anything. I had heard of Trial, but no one had told me, you know, Greg Benick is from Trial, right? So right. I was just like, oh, cool, this dude's really nice. I thought you were just with one of the bands, and uh, you were you were very gracious and kind. You came and complimented us. And then uh, I remember, like, right before the final band, whoever you were touring with, you opened for them. And you did this spoken word thing. And I expected it to be, uh, like, some sort of, like, slam poetry or something. <laughs> like, I had no right. idea right, right, right. Yeah. what to expect. Um, but you got up there, and you did essentially public speaking. 
I mean, that's that's it was just public speaking. Now, now some uh, inside baseball on me here that you wouldn't know. I'm a public speaking instructor. So when I was listening to you, I'm like, this dude would get an A. Like, <laughs> like I was sincerely <laughs> impressed with your speaking skills and uh, that you actually had a message. Like you were trying to tell us something, but you were doing it through storytelling, which is another part of my history. And I felt a connection with you in that moment. And I want to get to what that message was eventually. Okay. We're going to put a pin in it, but that's where we first met before we get to that pin though. One thing I'd like to learn about you is just, you know, like you are from this hardcore band from the nineties trial. Um, how, where did you grow up and how did you get from there to loving hardcore music? Okay, so I'm glad you asked because credit where credit is due to start. The speaking ability uh, I've often felt is the result of doing it again and again and again and again, over 500 trial shows and other bands and whatnot. But also it's genetic. So credit where credit is due. Uh, my mom is a brilliant speaker and she speaks not anymore, but she spoke professionally, semi-professionally for quite a while doing small events and whatnot. And the reason I bring her up is because the first time I went to see her speak was only about six or seven years ago. Now you have to keep in mind, my mom at the time was 73 or so years old. Wow. And she was speaking on the topic of exercising as you age for <laughs> at, a, at a hospital <laughs> in rural Virginia. And I called and I said, Mom, hey, I'm you know coming to visit you and dad. I thought, you know, it'd be you know fun to, to check in beforehand. And she's like, well, Gregory, it'd be great. You know, you'll get to see me. You'll get to see me speak if you're here because I have this event booked. And I was like, oh, wow, how how cute my mom is going to speak. I had no <laughs> idea what she did. Right. So we go get ready. You know, I get ready for my trip and she's saying, you know, yeah, the event is sold out. I'm very excited. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's sold out. I love imagining so, your mom talking that exact way. It's all sold out. <laughs> 100%. Like, just like, so I, I fly to the East Coast, and it turns out that this event is indeed sold out. It's at this hospital. They've sold tickets for, I think, $2 a piece. And there's like 100 people who bought tickets, and my mom sold this place out. I'm like, what the hell's happening? So we walk in. I'm standing in the back of the room. I got in, right? Because I know the speaker. So I'm standing. <laughs> you got guest standing, listed. <laughs> I got guest listed by my mom. So I'm standing in the back of the room and the whole room is senior, senior citizens. Um, and my mom is walking around and you have to imagine this like little lady just like waving at her friends and being all sweet and everyone's saying, hi, hi. And she's waving back and she walks up to the front of the room and they introduce her Please welcome, speaking on exercising as we age, Diane Benick. And she puts her notes down and she looks up at the audience and with the intensity of the most intense political speech you've ever seen <laughs> between songs at a hardcore show, this little lady who'd been waving at her friends looks at this room of senior citizens, uh, citizens and says, if you don't exercise as you age, you will fall down the stairs and your neighbors will read about you in the paper the next week. <laughs> and that's your opening line. And I'm like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> I felt like I was at a hardcore show. She went for 90 minutes, did not relent. 90 minutes of this intense, passionate, driving message of you have to exercise and why it's important. And at the end of it, I, I felt like 
like I was, I was in an audience. Like I was ready to like take on the world and do sit-ups and exercise as I age and whatever. <laughs> but in that moment, I realized where it all came from in me, the speaking and the connecting and the storytelling. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm basically my mom. This is so cool. So credit where credit is due. Shout yeah. out to Diane. That, that is uh, exceptionally awesome. And it's it's interesting though that you only saw her for the first time like seven years ago or something. Like how, how, yeah. how do you think that that influenced you prior? Has she always been kind of a communicator? <clears throat> always a storyteller, always a communicator, always a connector. And when I was growing up, she was teaching aerobics. That was her thing. And people would flock to these aerobics classes because she was so dynamic. And, and I remember going to one when I was about 17 and remember thinking, wow, she's really energetic and she's kicking my ass with the sit-ups and everything. But I'd never seen her do her actual talk. I just always taken it for granted. It's like, oh, it's my mom. It's going to be this mom talk. I don't even know what that means, but yeah. I'm, I'm telling you 90, 90 minutes. And at the time, I think that my keynote speeches were, were running like 45 to 60 minutes max. Like at the time, I never could have thought about doing 90. And I'm like, my 73 year old mother just totally schooled me in how to speak. This is unbelievable. But yeah, yeah it's where it, it's where it, you know, it was definitely a turning point moment for me. Dude. So thanks. Thanks, mom. Yeah. Thank you, Diane. <laughs> like, exactly. um, because, because you have influenced, uh, or at least motivated or, or I mean, what other term, uh, uplifted might be a word, you know, like that, that's maybe a term I would use whenever I saw you, there was something cause you know, whenever you have, can I ask how old you are, Greg? I'm 40, 49. All right. So 40, this, so at the time you'd have been around 47 or so 46, 47, you know, this mid forties guy walks up there, old hardcore dude. I've seen this before, right? Now, rarely does it work for me because, you know, people like Terror, for example, they kill, right? Like they get up there and they're sure. still rocking, uh, you know, watching Bedard with Bane or like any of those guys. Awesome, right? Um, but other times, you know, I've been around a lot of people and it's just kind of like, okay, like it's less that I feel motivated and more that I feel like gracious that this person's there. Right. Like, I love that you're still in this. It's more of that kind of a feeling. And so yeah. you get up there and I'm not one to be like overly judgmental. But for some reason, I was just like, OK, what's this guy got? And dude, you <laughs> sold it, man. Seriously. And and I, I I don't know. I just really appreciated. I feel like someone has to kind of have the stones to get up there and like do that. You know what I mean? Oh, to to awesome. go to a hardcore show or like a metal show and just talk and keep everyone's attention. And that's uh, something interesting because I was in the back of the room and I ended up in the front of the room, right? Um, and, you know, playing shows so often, like sometimes you just want to sit. It's not that you don't want to support people. I'm there for every band, right? But it's like sometimes you just want to sit at the merch booth and just like chill out for a minute. And it was one of those nights, you know what I mean? But then I end oh, yeah. up up front. Uh, so, uh, you know, like then after that, learning that you were like keynote speaker at uh, various like whether it be conferences or uh, different events, and doing all your spoken word, that is definitely uh, somewhere we have to go. But back to my question, where did you grow up? And how, like, how did you get to trial? How did you get into hardcore? Yeah, so I, <clears throat> I grew up in a town called Woodbury, Connecticut, a small, uh, ancient town as, as U.S. standards go. And there was a, a couple of people into hardcore in my town, into punk rock at the time. And I didn't know much about it at all, really. I was just hanging out with the wrong kids, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. 
and, you know, got intrigued by it. But one of the kids who got me into it originally was this kid, Chris, who lived up the street from me. And he started coming over to my house with these cassette tapes that he had recorded from the radio at the time of punk rock bands that he heard from radio stations that he was picking up somehow from from other parts of the state and from New York City. And he comes over to my house with with hip hop and hardcore on these cassettes and I'm listening to it. And I found the hip hop stuff interesting, cool, important, relevant, fascinating. But it was it was close to what I was hearing in other aspects of my life, like on the radio, say. Sure. But the punk the punk rock was like, what the hell is happening? I mean, I was a metal kid growing up. Hair metal was my thing. And and uh, Dokken and Motley Crue and Twisted Sister, Quiet Riot, these bands, uh, Rat. Um, so when I heard hardcore for the first time, I thought, what is this that takes that intensity, as I saw it in hair metal, and then adds swearing and messages? Like, what's going on here? It's so yeah. raw. So I was I was hooked by it, and I was very fortunate to grow up near the Anthrax, the sort of iconic uh, hardcore club on the East Coast. And while I didn't have the courage to go into New York and go to CBGBs because I didn't a know what was really happening there, and 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 b I wouldn't have known where to go, what to do if I did. Um, the Anthrax was totally accessible, so my friends and I went all the time, and we started going early on, and then just kept going. And I got a chance to see a lot of, you know, bands that now are considered iconic, but at the time were just bands. I didn't think anything of it. I mean, we would get these flyers from the Anthrax and think, what are you doing Friday night? Oh, cool. There's a bad, a band called Bad Brains playing. Let's go see that. And we had no idea. We'd walk into these shows and be like, okay, cool. Thank you. Agnostic front band for playing. That was fun. And we'd go eat at Dunkin' Donuts and drive home, but we did that all the time. Yeah. So you know, that's, that's what got me into hardcore. And then I moved out to Seattle, um, to go to college to study acting. And once I got out here, I was really expecting to see a scene as vibrant and thriving as Connecticut, as Connecticut had. And it was actually quite small. I remember my first show here was, uh, January of 1991 was undertow with poison idea. And I remember going up to the members of undertow after, cause they opened the show and I remember sitting and saying to John Pettibone, who I met five seconds before, wow, how, how big is the straight edge scene here? And he and his friends started laughing and they were like, we're it. And he, <laughs> they met like the, the band plus their three friends was it. So what's happened in the Northwest has been quite remarkable over the last few decades. Yeah, absolutely. When did you, when did you learn about straight edge then? And when did that come into your life? Because you just said once you, by the time you moved to Seattle, it seems like you were already there. So what, yeah. like, where, how did that get there? Well, in the late 80s, there was, you know, it's so funny to talk about the 80s. It seems like, you know, Neolithic times, like we were writing <laughs> in form and carving into tablets for our show flyers, right? Uh, stone tablet with show announcement here. <laughs> um, in the 80s, in the late 80s, 1987, 88 in particular, there was this incredible infusion of or rise of straight edge on the East Coast. And it seemed that Every week there was new bands coming out and my friends and I, who at the time were drinking as much as we possibly could and doing all the drugs we could find and afford, um, were like, what is this straight edge thing? This is stupid. I mean, I, I, you know, I, for me, it started with punk rock more than anything else. So I saw all these cookie cutter straight edge kids and their camo shorts and their, you know, similar 
dancing styles. And I just thought this is just so dumb and conformist and ridiculous. And then I was like, wait a minute, they've got a cool message behind this. And they might be conformist and all have these bleach blonde haircuts and look the same, but there's something here. And then I got hooked by the music. And then I realized how unhappy I was with myself for uh, the times that I was drinking. And then I heard um, Uniform Choices song, No Thanks. And I remember exactly where I was when I was listening. I was driving in my car. I could literally bring you to the street in Woodbury, Connecticut, where I was driving. <laughs> and I heard the lyrics, if drinking's what it takes to be accepted, I'd rather stay aware and be rejected. And I thought, wow, I can still be a punk rocker and embrace this straight edge concept, or at least the not drinking concept. And I quit drinking. And I mean, that was September 30th, 1988, which is a lifetime, literally a lifetime ago. And then uh, started, you know, referring to myself as straight edge years later. But um, but still from that starting point was was hooked. I mean, there's you know, there's something to be said for that. I hate to say it this way, conformity in that we are we are pack animals. We're meaning hungry creatures. We draw our identity from one another. So when we're around like-minded individuals, there's a, not to get, you know, overtly psychological, but there's a psychological strengthening, which comes from that. It's a self-esteem building, identity enhancing activity. So it makes sense why we hang out with hardcore people or people who are into movies or people who are into, you know, the same music. There's something to be said about it. So I just, I latched onto it and started going to shows and, you know, even more often and uh, really connecting with the idea that we collectively were doing this straight edge and or drug free thing at the time. And uh, it was very life enhancing for me. I just never, never went back. Yeah. It's interesting that you use the word conformity loosely. I know you were hesitant, um, but something I was talking to, I believe uh, Ricardo and Dan from holding these moments or maybe the Bane guys, maybe both. I don't remember. Um, but there's something about being in like a family, like because it, it, the hardcore scene and like the sub sects of the scene that you hang around, like your group, maybe in that scene. So maybe in yours, it was the straight edge kids. Even though there is a larger hardcore scene, you were in like that straight edge community. Um, it becomes like a family. And, and often it's it's a lot more difficult, or at least in my experience, it was more difficult to relate to my real family. And it was a lot easier for me to relate to like my hardcore family, right? Because my family, they were like baby boomers and I'm like, technically I'm a millennial, but my point is like, I'm like a way in a way different place, okay? And my dad's yeah. just like, you know, again, dad's listening to this. I love you. You're the best. But like, you know, my dad was kind of a like, stop crying and do hard work. <laughs> you know, like when I was growing up, you know, he's the coolest now. I can't stress that enough. But like, uh, it was just a lot different then. You know what I mean? So whenever you get into hardcore and stuff, it's from the outside, it may look like oh, you're just you're just trying to be a goth kid or you're just trying to be an emo kid or a hardcore kid or whatever. But when you're in it, though, it's true, man. Like it's it's yeah. a real thing. Yeah, it's and 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 like a family, it's uh, it's dysfunctional and anxiety producing. And <laughs> it's exactly like a family, but it's also like I was mentioning earlier, it's truly, genuinely life and identity enhancing. You know, we draw power from many different sources in our lives, and one of them is the people around us. And that's a huge one. It's 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 by way of those around us that we can reflect 
what we're putting out into the world and from those reactions strengthen and enhance the the attributes of ourselves that we're we're, we're being. I don't even know how else to describe it. We come into being through our relationship with other people. So when we're at a hardcore show and we're connecting with people and talking, there's just this self-identity that, that gets built amidst that. And I don't mean that that's a fiction. I mean that it's quite real. I mean, you know, people do this in all walks of life. And in fact, I can tell you a quick story that, that proves that in a way, not proves it, but that demonstrates it in a way. Mm-hmm. I dated for many years uh, a woman named Cynthia, who I'm still very good friends with. And Cynthia's favorite band was Fish, the Grateful Dead thing. You know, the <laughs> <laughs> PH, you know. Yeah, PH. Fish and the PH. So when we started dating, we both thought that the other was completely out of their minds. Our, one of our first dates, she came to see Trial, Hatebreed, and Today's the Day at, 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 at a show. And afterwards, wow. she's just like, I'm not sure this is going to work, you know, like, yeah. it's like what is happening. But so we'd kind of goof on each other all the time. But there was one day I was telling her, I was like, you don't, you don't seem to understand anywhere I go in the world, I can find or meet hardcore kids who are like-minded, you know, at least loosely like-minded, even if we disagree on politics or our approach, we're going to find, I'm going to find community anywhere I go in the world. Even if I don't know anyone in the city, just based on the fact that we have this music as a background and I'm going to find a place to sleep and I'll be able to share a meal with somebody and we're going to be able to connect over music and over this lifestyle. And she looked at me, she's like, yeah, we, we've got that too. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. You, you like fish. They're a Grateful Dead band. What I'm talking about is hardcore. <laughs> Anywhere I can go in the world, I've got this community and I went on to describe it. There's these shows with this passion and everyone comes together and it's like, you know, these nights that are just magic. And she's like, yeah, I, yeah, we've got we've got that too. Okay, I realized that she was absolutely right. Yeah. And I remember when she and I went to see Fish together. I think the one and only time was in Salt Lake City, Utah. We flew down there for this tremendous Fish show that turned out to be brilliant and incredible. Um, I realized she was right that the self-esteem enhancing, identity building personality developing aspects of, of community are everywhere, regardless of its fish or the metal scene or the goth scene or the hip hop scene or the hardcore scene. But what we've got is special in its own right for us. Cause it's the one that we chose. We could have chose a- any one of them, but we chose hardcore and, and it's, it's, it's important to have a community of some kind. I don't think that human beings get to live in a vacuum. So when we come together and we're moshing or stage diving or singing along or sitting in the back at the merch table or watching the guy do spoken word on stage, this is, this is important psychological stuff, not to mention it's oftentimes fun and interesting and politically challenging. So it's, it's good all around. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's also partly like that connection, you know, anytime you get a connection with somebody, or a group of people, you know, have you ever had a friend, Greg, where, uh, they have a certain saying that they say, and over time being around them long enough, you start to like integrate (laughs) that saying into your vocabulary because you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Uh, you know, I have that, um, a lot. Uh, I'm trying to remember now the word cause now it's, uh, it's so, I'm so used to it, but my buddy Thrasher, he's going to text me and say, shout out. But anyways, um, my buddy Thrasher uh, says uh, good shout, which is like a, a, a British term. And I find myself sometimes stopping myself from saying it because 
it's like natural to like I just want to say, oh, good shout, dude. You know, but it like I don't know. It's like a strange thing. So anyway, my point is, whenever you when you get a connection with somebody or a group of people or or you find that connection, um, that those people are are inherently influential on how you perceive that shared experience or life or, or whatever the situation or connection uh, entails. So like, um, if anybody listening to this is a good friend of mine, they've heard me go on this rant, but there's something that I learned studying communications where you look at beliefs, attitudes, and values, and that shapes how we think, feel, and behave, right? So, uh, you know, if uh, you grew up in a, in a kind of blue collar Southern uh, household in a, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, Southern Baptist church, um, and I don't know, um, uh, I don't know. The point is like you, you have these like, uh, demographic details, right. That, that fill in. And then someone may be from, you know, Seattle, you know, mid forties, blah, blah, blah. Like all of these things listens to hardcore. You guys may not connect as well on the surface. You know, you might be able to find room to connect. Um, but because of the upbringing that you each had, you started in Connecticut, went to uh, Seattle. You know, I've been in Indiana my whole life, pretty much, with the exception of maybe a year of my life. Um, you know, we're going to have different experiences that we may be able to find uh, connections in. But our beliefs, attitudes, and values, which shape how we think, feel, and behave, are going to influence how we perceive all things. So, for example... Your, your beliefs, attitudes, and values may have been shaped by hardcore, right? You might have seen Undertow or, or whoever, and these things were really connecting with you, right? And then, uh, you know, this young lady that you're seeing is into fish, right? Now, that is not a shared experience for you, right? Your beliefs, attitudes, and values about certain things may have been shaped differently. But something I also find interesting is you did find a way to connect, right? You found the connection, um, and so, uh, I don't know. I, I, I love that. That was a complete tangent, but I, I really, no, 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 this is great. Yeah. I really love picking up on those things because, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, I don't know. It's just like a really impactful thing to me. Well, if you remember, if I remember correctly and granted, there's been a ton of spoken shows, but if I'm remembering the, the Indiana show correctly, that night I told the story of my parents meeting on stage. And if I'm remembering correctly, I'd never told that story at a hardcore show on stage. It's one that I tell when I do m like more commercial speaking engagements, but I'd never told that story on stage at a hardcore show ever. I took the risk that night to try to tell it because I thought this is a way to connect with the audience, meaning everybody has or had parents who at some point met. So if I tell the story, this is a connective tool because I didn't really know many people in the audience that night. And I remember telling the story and having it go over pretty well, if I'm remembering the, the, the right night. And I think that uh, I think that that's um, what I want to say, that, that that that's a way to connect in the way that you're describing. Right. I think it's really um, it, it, an important thing to do when one is on stage or when one is in person is, is to connect on some level. Like, for example, like you and I, the audio listeners don't know this, are looking at each other right now uh, via Skype. It helps to have that connection. And when you talk about that Cynthia and I, many years ago, found a way to connect across musical differences, you know, when we went to this fish show in Salt Lake City, fish was famous every Halloween for doing a full cover concert. 
they would do a, an album front to back. And I tried to get her tickets for, I think it was Reno, Nevada or Las Vegas. And it sold out on that particular night that year. So I was like, oh, well, we'll go to the next night in Salt Lake as a backup plan. Fish comes out on stage that night in Salt Lake and they tell this anecdote from the stage, like about this, you know, this, these people who tried to go to the show because they knew that a lot of people in the audience couldn't get tickets the night before. And they said, you know, so these people hypothetically came the next night instead. And the whole crowd is cheering because like half of the people probably wanted to be there the night before. And, and Fish, who had evidently played the Velvet Underground record the night before, I think, said to the audience, and these people who showed up at this backup show got to hear this album instead. And they played Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon from front to back Holy as a cover shit. record. Yeah. Okay. I'm standing there in the audience and now it's Cynthia who wasn't as familiar with Dark Side of the Moon and me who's like Pink Floyd fanatic. I'm just like, what is happening? I'm a Fish fan. I love this band so much. <laughs> and we lost our minds. We lost our minds. And like I had like at the time I was doing the like tons. Of, this is going to we're going off into the deep end of weirdness. I'm excited. Here. Do it. OK. I was, um, you know, I, I made my living for years as a juggler and performer. And at the time I was doing tons of fairs and festivals as a, as a stage performer. So in my pocket at the fish show, I reach into my pocket and in this pair of pants, I realized I had these long balloons, like the time, the type you twist into animals. <laughs> yeah. So I start pulling out these balloons and I'm blowing them up and like shooting them out into the audience, these long, thin balloons, like not just one, not just five, but like 70, 80 of them. I just had my, this, this pack of balloons in my pocket and they start making their way onto the stage somewhere. There's a video of this Salt Lake show with the members of fish picking up or kicking around these balloons on stage that, that Cynthia and I are blowing up and sending into the audience. I mean, talk about connection between me and Cynthia and there's balloons flying around and people are appreciating that. There's just something about it. And that is the cousin to the sing-alongs, the stage dives, the, 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 the band shirt, the colored vinyl, but more importantly, just the sense that we're involved in something collectively, all of that is all connected, totally life enhancing. And, uh, and yeah, that's, uh, the fish story as it were. I have <laughs> I something super exciting. I, I'm excited to ask you about juggling, but we're going to get there in a second. Cause I have to bring <laughs> this up. You brought up t-shirts and as a collective or like as a connection. Right. And I was talking, I yeah. think, I think to Andy Williams from every time I die was on here a few episodes back uh -huh. and uh, he's a professional wrestler now for all elite wrestling. Yep. And I'm a big wrestling fan. So we were like geeking out about that, you know, and he was talking about, you know, you know, if somebody's wearing a Metallica shirt or the Misfits shirt or Led Zeppelin, it doesn't mean you will automatically connect with them, right? Mm -hmm. But because it's so pop culture, it's so big now that so sure. many people from different walks of life could be wearing that thing. Or maybe it's just a fashion thing. It just depends. Or maybe they're super into it. But then if you get somebody wearing like, I don't know, uh, like a, 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 a Zayo shirt or like, uh, you know, or like um, a strong arm shirt or, you know um, what I mean? Or, or like yes. uh, uh, Shia Lude. You have a pretty fucking good chance of being friends with this person because you know what you're in for. If they're wearing yeah. that shirt, if they're wearing a trial shirt. Yes. Like, I, I'm probably going to be able to talk to this person to some extent. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so that's no joke. 
Like, t- <laughs> t-shirts are definitely a part of that conversation. That was a big thing for me going to shows, even, is, like, you find your pack by, you know, the shirts that they were wearing for me, you know? Uh, if somebody's wearing, you know, uh, I grew up in the church, so, I, you know, I... Uh, the This is why you, you named Zayo and Strongarm first. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, th- that was my <laughs> upbringing, because that's why yeah. I didn't know Trial until way later, or... Uh, hate breed even I, I knew who they were but I didn't listen to them until I was like 25 or something right. you know yeah. um, because the first what 20 years of my life it was like one it was hardcore or metal or nothing scream or nothing right and so I didn't even do hair metal bands I went from listening to my mom's CDs of like Whitney Houston to like you know unashamed you know what I mean like that Amazing. was my jump yeah, yeah, mortification yeah. so I started with like Christian hardcore in the youth group there were people listening to like unashamed old Zayo stuff um, all of that. And, uh, I got hooked, man. That was like, but it was that connection. It was that family. These are the cool kids. These are the kids I want to be like, right. You mentioned like being with the wrong crowd. They were probably the wrong crowd of this youth group, you know, of course. but they were the people that I found cool and I connected with. And I thought it was like really interesting, but when we would go to shows and we would go to these, like, uh, say, say, I remember, um, one time I saw, uh, stretch Armstrong with, I forget who it was. It was like bleeding through or something. Like it was some, it was like a quote unquote Christian band, which whatever. And then like a quote unquote secular band. Right. I was going to say a mixed bill. Yeah. 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 So like, you know, um, I remember going there and you could just see on the shirts, you know, if someone's wearing like that Zayo shirt or they're wearing that, you know, uh, Norma Jean shirt or they're wearing, you know, whatever the thing is, um, these are my people. And then you go talk to them and I'm still friends with people. I randomly talk to at shows because of t-shirts they're wearing. So it is a connective tool. Um, and uh, I love that you brought that up. Now I gotta go, I gotta run a juggling real quick. Okay. <laughs> Imagine my excitement when I look at your IMDB page. Okay. And I see the title, the beast within a Gabriel Knight mystery <laughs> and being a huge point and click adventure fan. Um, having only played the first Gabriel Knight, not the full motion animation, uh, the full motion video uh, version. So I look on YouTube today, and God damn it, Greg, I find you juggling. <laughs> I've never seen I've never seen the footage. You'll have to send me the link, dude. I will. So, it's the opera scene from that, and, and yes. you can watch the whole thing. But will you please? Because I want to talk about your acting. Because you mentioned going to school for acting, but we have to jump to this now because you brought up juggling. I'm a huge game guy, and I grew up playing point and clicks, right? And it was mostly like, I don't know, did you ever grow up playing those, or is this a complete fluke that you were involved in one? Um, I got hired for the gig. At the time, I think I played a couple. I couldn't even remember titles, but I remember playing a couple just to understand what was going on. But uh, yeah, it wasn't a huge part of my life. My thing was more like console games and and whatnot, but anyway. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I grew up, my uncle always had these types of games around. Um, usually the comedy games, like, uh, titles you may have heard of are like Monkey Island or Space Quest yep. or like these, you know, he'd have King's <laughs> Quest and these like classics, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, I never knew Gabriel Knight until years later. And I see this on your IMDb. How did this come to be this? You're completely just entertaining <laughs> me now. I don't really care if listeners even know what this is. How did okay. you get involved in this? Cause this is amazing. Okay, you're the first person, I think, to ever ask me about this. I'm so happy that you have. So, I mean, I'm not game, surprised at all. This, 
game has been out for 20, 20 years. It was game of the year that year. And uh, as far as I understand, it won tons of awards. Okay, so context for the listeners. Gabriel... Gabriel, um, Gabriel Knight, the beast. Yeah. Gabriel Knight was a series of games. The beast within was one of those games. If I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. The second one. And I was, I got a call from an agent saying that they were filming in Seattle for one of the cut scenes at the end of the game. And they needed a juggler for this scene. They needed a couple, actually, as I remember correctly. And I remember they they hired – I think they hired a guy named Bob Bailey and they hired me. And we were told to meet at this theater and we come down to the theater and we we're told that it's an opera scene and it's going to be at the end of the game. And essentially, spoiler alert for a 20-year-old game, if you play the game all the way through to the end and chase this werewolf all the way through the game, you end up in this opera where there's this dramatic confrontation and – I'm on stage, I missed this opera scene, and I'm juggling on stage. Okay. So I went down, and for me, it was just a gig. Like, it was a few hundred bucks, and I went down, and I did this gig, and I juggled for, you know, the, the day, and they shot it from a bunch of different angles. And then I forgot about it. <laughs> I okay. juggled for the day. <laughs> <laughs> I love funny, that phrasing. Go <laughs> I, love, I love the fact that, for me, that's the least... <laughs> curious of the things I just said, right? For me that I got hired for a werewolf scene is weird. Yeah. The juggling for the day, that's like, that's just another day at work, right? Yeah. Okay. So check it out. So, so I forgot about it for about a year or so. And one night at about 11 o'clock, I get a phone call from my friend, Mike in Connecticut and Mike can't even speak. Okay. He is like, uh, d- dude, oh, what the hell? You're in my video game. What the hell is going on? He had been sitting up. He bought Gabriel Gabriel Knight Beast Within, played the game all the way through to the end, is probably sitting there stoned out of his mind. And at two in the morning, Connecticut time, I'm on his screen. He's like, what's happening? You're in my video game. And I'm like, hey, dude, yeah, I am in your video game. Um, it was pretty wild. So... I haven't been asked about that in forever, but dude, I, I, love, I, uh, I, love I mean, I had no idea this was a thing. I just looked at your IMDb because I know you'd produced and written some movies. Um, and I know that you had acted in seven splinters in time. Um, but then I see, cause I was looking for, cause I couldn't remember seven splinters in time, the name, and I was going to look it up. And then I look at your acting credits are right below it. It says the beast within a Gabriel night mystery. And below that, it says the last supper, which I have no idea what that is, but well, we might have to talk about that in a moment. Um, but the Gabriel Knight thing, just also for context, uh, Gabriel Knight was one of the biggest series that I believe it was Sierra online had. And, uh, there's a great podcast, by the way, if anybody wants to listen to it, this is a random, no one paid me to say it. It's called Point and Click, an adventure game podcast. This dude does an awesome in-depth look at these games, and he did the first Gabriel Knight. So if you want to learn about where that came from and kind of a historical thing, go check that out. I love that. I should just have him on sometime. Even though this is a movie thing, we got to talk Point and Click Adventures. But anyways, so uh, what's awesome is right around this time, which this came out in 96, so it's like 24, almost 25 years old, um, uh, full motion video was really popular. So even though now it looks way more aged than like any of the games before it, you know, at the time that was cutting edge, dude. So you were a part of something that was actually important because the Gabriel Knight series is a lot, 
uh, along with a lot of other full motion video games, uh, were like That's big so cool. deals. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I almost like fell on the ground whenever I read that. I just because <laughs> I just recently played the first game. Oh, actually, it was during That's this so pandemic cool. because once the shutdown hit on um, Steam or uh, good old games, GOG, uh, you can buy point and click adventure games for like sixty nine cents to like five dollars. Like they're so cheap. So I bought like 25 of them for less than 20 bucks, dude. Like so many games. And one of them was the first Gabriel Knight game. I don't know why I'm telling you this now, but I'm just like so hyped. I'm sure you can see it. But <laughs> I love it. Um, I'm so, so excited about this. Yeah. So tell me this, though. So you, you do this gig. But what got you to go out to Seattle for acting? Like how did acting come out of it? And then were you are this is like a two parter, I guess. Were you already in trial at that point or like? Where did that come in? Like, what's the split? What's the timeline between acting and hardcore? Yeah, I'm realizing everything we've talked about for the last half hour is a diversion from that, which was your first question, which is great. I love when interviews go <laughs> No, we're there. Way. We got there, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and I need, to, I need to buy and play Gabriel Knight, The Beast Within, so I can get to the opera scene and play myself, as it were, uh, see myself <laughs> on screen. Are you going to send me the YouTube I'm gonna video? I'm going to send you the YouTube video. I love it. Okay, so... Um, I was uh, out of out of high school. I went to Syracuse University for a year and dropped out after a year. Uh, I had seen a performer named Larry Hunt, who is now unfortunately deceased, but he was incredibly talented. And he worked with masks as a metaphor uh, and masks as as demonstration of different aspects of our lives. He was a, th a theatrical stage performer. And I saw him do a gig in upstate New York when I was at Syracuse and I made mention to him that I wasn't happy with the school. I loved the people that I was meeting, but I wasn't happy with the school. And he said, you know, if you were back in Connecticut, because that's where he was from, we could maybe do, um, you know, a situation where I teach you about masks. And I was like, cool, dropped out of school, spent the next year studying masks with him, mask making, how to perform with them, what they signify. And then at the end of the year, he was like, what are you going to do next year? I said, I have no idea. He said that he had uh, friends who taught at a school called Cornish College of the Arts in Seattle. He's like, why don't you look it up and see what you think? So I looked it up and applied and ended up getting in uh, for acting and moved across the country uh, to study acting at Cornish. And that was four years before trial formed, I think. Trial formed right after I graduated. So that was pre-trial, but that's how I made it out to Seattle. And that's where trial ultimately came from. Gotcha. Yeah. And so, so... You go to school, you do the acting thing, you do this really badass game, and, and then um, while you're acting, you get what is this Last Supper thing? Tell me, it's a, it's a short. Okay. You play the person that that's okay. your that's your name on there. So um, while in school, I was juggling to make part of my living, and I met a local juggler named Gabriel Jude Weinshell, <laughs> and Gabriel at the time was maybe 17 years old and he was a juggler and, and had a, a show and we used to perform together at street fairs as street performers. And uh, Gabriel was making his first film or maybe his second little film. And I say little only because they were short films at the time, but this one was going to be more ambitious than the rest. And I should say that Gabriel was this genius of a kid. He was well beyond his years in terms of what this film was about. Um, and he told me, I'm making a movie about a man who learns that he's living his last day and he has to reconcile that fact before he dies. I'm like, dude, you're 17. Like, what are you talking about? That's what your film is about. But cool. OK, so he hired myself 
and uh, an, and a local actress who I think I think we were dating at the time uh, named Gabrielle Sarand and uh, uh, to be in his film. And it's a 25 minute short film about a man who indeed is living his last day and reconciles this fact before he dies. And I'd have to ask Gabriel to see where it's available. I can I can send him a message and see there might be a version of it somewhere on his website and whatnot. Um, Gabriel has gone on to make films, including Seven Splinters in Time, as well oh. as direct as well as direct videos, you know, for all sorts of different musicians. He just worked with Ben Harper. He's done a ton of stuff. But Gabriel's the one who 20 plus years later called me and said, hey, after making these short, quirky films, I'm directing my first feature. He had told me in 1993, someday when I do my first feature, I'm going to cast you at, as as one of the stars. I was like, cool. And kind of like the Gabriel Night Within thing, when it was done, I was just like, okay, there you go. <laughs> Gabriel Jude Weinshell called me a, a few years ago. He said, hey, I'm in New York City. I'm casting my first feature and I want you to star in this film. And that became Seven Splinters in Time, this extremely abstract, incredibly interesting, quirky, weird film uh, that that just got released a couple years ago. So that's that's how that came, <laughs> that came together. Yeah, um, I watched yeah. the trailer to it because I haven't seen it. Uh, I had never heard of it either um, until I was looking you up after my holding these moments uh, like conversations, and I was looking up different people involved. Of course, you were, and uh, I saw that and I was like, oh my god, I have to like educate myself. I hate not knowing movies, right? Like that bothers me because I spent so many years studying and studying and studying and learning all these things. Um, but watching it, it, the quirkiness definitely comes out, and uh, I, 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 I need to see the whole feature. Um, but The Last Supper, I tried to find it on YouTube while we were just talking just now, and I'd, I'd have to dig pretty deep. I doubt it is. If you find out where it is, though, I want to see this thing. Um, I'll get it for you. I'll, I talk to Gabriel pretty often, so I'll, uh, I'll, fo- I'll follow up and get it to you. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, yeah, uh, again, can't stress enough. I'm so excited that you were in The Beast Within. I'm going to send you that YouTube. So you're doing all of this, and then uh, when did trial form? What year? Around what year was that? Was that ninety-seven? No, it was, uh, we formed in 1994, and we used the name Headline in 1994 for a, 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 a minute, like literally like a month or so. And then we recorded a demo. Maybe it was a couple months. We were Headline, and then we recorded a demo. Spring, winter, spring, 1995, and that's when we changed the name to Trial. So it was uh, spring of, of 1995. I, I can't get over the Beast Within Gabriel Night Two that we talked about this <laughs> this opera scene. I'm going to be like laughing about this all day. It's amazing, it's, and that you're excited about it. It's not just that you read the credit and you're like, oh, what is this? And I told you, and you're like, cool, bro. Who cares? The fact that that's like the operative moment for you has made my day. <laughs> I mean, it's made mine just finding it, like, and then watching the scene on YouTube, and then just like so intensely looking for you because I'm like, where could he be? And then you just there's a there's a main guy in your you know uh, drove of gypsies that you're with, and then you just walk in front of him and immediately start juggling his pins or whatever and i'm like yes holy shit that's him <laughs> like i almost didn't recognize you because you have this big jester hat on and um See, I, don't I, know. I was gonna ask i was gonna ask if i had a jester hat or am i wearing like a white puffy shirt of some kind i only remember red tights but okay. maybe you were I, I can't remember 
No, no. And honestly, I, I the reason I'm asking is because I might have had a, a, a jester costume. We shot a bunch of different versions. Now that I'm remember, I haven't thought about this in years. I had this white jester outfit that someone had made for me for one specific gig. Right. I never wore it. But some I, we got hired uh, like a friend of mine who was a mime and myself. <laughs> <laughs> We're going deep now. <laughs> I just want to clarify real quick that you've been involved in video games. Uh, You were, your mom was a communicator. Uh, You're a hardcore singer in a popular hardcore band. You're also a juggler. You're friends with mimes. I mean, this is getting really awesome and very interesting already. Okay. So, so my friend who was a mime called me and was like, listen, I have a gig for us, but we have to be dressed as like jesters. And I'm like, I'd rather die, but sure, I'll do it for the money. So she came up with these outfits and I remember having this white puffy shirt thing and I brought it to the Gabriel Knight Beast Within shooting, filming. And I remember wearing it for some of the scenes, but then they had an outfit or a costumer on hand and they changed costumes. So I don't even know what I look like in this thing, but I love the fact that the scene of me juggling is like front and center because I remember two things. I remember thinking, I wonder if I should jump in front of the camera so that like I increase my chances of actually being in this game. And then I also remember thinking, nah, whatever. If I'm in it, I'm in it, fine. But I think the director told me cross in front of the camera at some point. So I'm, I'm fascinated to see how this yeah, all turns out. I got to show you, because you even have a close-up on your face where you're like, it looks like you're trying to pull your hair out, but you have a jester hat on. Um, I mean, it's it's re- it's gold, dude. Uh, and I don't, I don't even really like full motion video, like video games from that time, but I have to like play this game. Um, I, I mean, you're really, just through the pandemic, I got super deep into point and clicks again. So, I mean, this is really... Uh, hitting a nail, so to speak. Um, so we're, I, I feel like we could sit and talk about this exact scene for like two hours. But um, so <laughs> let me. <laughs> I'm gonna. I love the fact in one in one interview thus far, I told the story of my mom crushing this audience of senior citizens. <laughs> And about my friend the mime and this like this video game. It's like unbelievable. This is what I'm here for, Greg. This oh, this is what so I glad. do, man. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> okay, hold on. So so trial forms in '94. Um, what was the original name? Headline. So headline, but only for a minute, and then your trial. You put out this demo. Now, at what point do you go from just being some local band from the Northwest to uh, like touring all the time? Um, like, when did you meet the guys in Bain, like Bedard? Um, I might be projecting, but it seemed like you knew Bedard and you guys were friends. How did, how did here's you get how this, to there? Yeah, here's how this happened. So uh, trial things when okay, now all this with a grain of salt, because today, if your band takes off, you've got 100,000 followers and you're crushing it worldwide. Okay. Yeah. In 1995, things took off in air quotes relatively quickly in that, you know, the first night we had our demo for sale, we expected to sell five copies. We, we sold like 70 or 80. And it's just something about, again, it's just what makes one band happen and another band not. It was the right band on the right night at the right moment at the right time. And this little buzz started. Well, I should specify that Trial was never the full-time touring machine that Bain was. You know, we'd go out a couple times a year for six or seven weeks or something, uh, whereas other bands go constantly. Yeah. 
but it was on one of the early tours. I think we toured the U.S. for the first time in 1996, if I remember correctly, in support of the Through the Darkest Days 7-inch that came out on Crime Think. And it was on that tour that we met Bane. And it might have been late 95 that we went out for the first time. But I remember we were playing in in, in Kingston or Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And I remember that we were playing with Bane and Aaron Bedard and I sat down and talked. And I remember him saying that he hoped that Bane could go out and tour as much as Trial did. And I was like, well, it's easy. You go out every a couple times a year for six or seven weeks and you're done. Little did I know that Bane would go out for six or seven decades nonstop, you know, (laughs) at the time, at the time, you know, what the amount of touring that we were doing seemed like, you know, enough. I mean, in retrospect, I wish we toured more almost, but, um, you know, my voice at the time simply couldn't handle it. It's, it's very strange that my voice went out for years and years and years. And oddly, interestingly, in 2015, it locked in and has not given me problems since. It literally took 20 years of singing hardcore and constantly being frustrated and disappointed with my voice. And I remember being on stage in Russia with Trial, I think it was 20, was it 2015 or 2013, that all of a sudden um, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I could do this all night. And since then, studio, live, whatever bands, back-to-back shows, doesn't make a difference. Uh, my voice stays pretty intact for the most part. It's only gone out when I've like like lost concentration and like blown it out, you know, like yeah. I did on like, the bystander tour in Europe last summer. But even then, I can make it happen each night, which is very bizarre. Yeah, it, it, dude, it's something that most listeners will not even understand is the life of a hardcore vocalist. Okay, <laughs> That conditioning your voice is like conditioning any muscle. I remember I had been out of hardcore from 2008 until 2014, I think it was. Because I remember I started, it was a solo project, and then a few friends I'd played with back in 2008 were like, we'll play that music. And it was already planned. One of the guys is going to be moving, so it's like, we're going to play like two or three shows just to do it for fun. The first one we had was a festival that we knew the guy, and he's like, dude, you can play on. I'm like, fuck yeah, dude, like, we'll play in front of a few hundred people for our first show, I don't care, and we'd all played music for years, right, so I had went through a divorce at that time, so I'm all kinds of emotional, right, and I'm all kinds of worked up, and I'm, like, a big mess, and I remember we, like, played that first show, and my voice was gone for, like, two weeks, dude, like, I well, blew right. it up, yeah, and then, you know, we, we played our next show, like, two weeks later, I got through that one, it's blown up for, like, two weeks, and then we stopped playing, and then 2016, I join uh, Barricades because they were another band called Inheritors. We changed the name and uh, started doing our own thing in 2016. And I joined because my best friend was in the band um, and they needed a vocalist. So I jumped in. I hadn't done anything but two shows in like eight years, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. And so uh, I, I try to go into the studio because I'm also at the time recording a solo record. Like I wanted to do like a solo project, a hardcore project. And I go in, and it's the same studio I had mentioned to you before we started recording, I think, or at the beginning of this, whatever. And uh, I try to scream in the first note. There's no, like, girth to it, dude. There's no roar. It's a squeak. And, uh, like, the first push, I blew my voice out. And I went from that to being able to go three, four nights in a row, like, with barricades. You know what I mean? Where we're, like, playing all these shows. And I just, it's so defeating, though. 
Like whenever you can't do the thing, especially if you're so passionate about it, because I love playing music. And um, just a few days ago, actually, I was writing a song uh, and I was like, dude, I'm just going to like throw random vocals over this just to see if I still got it. And the fact that anything solid came out made me so happy. Um, but like, I can't imagine playing in a band for what at that point was what, almost two decades at that point or well, something. Yeah, it was, it was, it was 20 years. And yeah. I can't remember what year that the, um, the Russian show was, it was 2013 or 2015, whatever it was, it was almost 20 years or 20 years. And then one night it just clicked about where to position your breath and how to project and how to push and not push too hard. And like Pushing I said, too hard, you, dude, that's, that yeah. was my thing. Well, when trial first was recording through the darkest days in 96, we recorded with a recording engineer who was very part-time, didn't know what he was doing. And he advised me to push hard and, and you know, push really hard and make my voice bleed. He said, and that set me on a, on a tangent that almost cost me my voice. Meaning I was told before we recorded our album to stop singing. And the only reason we recorded with me is because I refused literally a doctor's orders. I spent uh, nine months, I think it was not speaking above this volume about, about this loud first nine months. I protected my voice for nine months oh. and yeah. So I, like, even if like I was hurt or something, I'd be like, ow, I would never <laughs> scream, you know? <laughs> um, it was intense. And I, I, I studied breathing with an opera coach, ironically, because I don't know if you know, but I was in Gabriel Knight, <laughs> Abused Within, too, in the opera scene. But I studied with an opera coach um, for, for those nine months, and it was really helpful to learn breathing technique. And like I said, since then, the only times that I've blown my voice out are when I'm not concentrating, which is true of anything, meaning you could be the greatest runner in the world or a good whatever athlete. And if you just, you don't warm up, you just start sprinting into traffic. It's not going to go well for you. And on the bystander tour in Europe last year, after a show or so, you know, I just wasn't concentrating. I just took it for granted, right. And blew my voice out a bit, but it's nothing like it was back in the day when I had that squeak. And that squeak is, is, you know, we can get super technical about vocal cords and what happens to vocal cords when that squeak is happening, but that's just not a good thing. Mm -mm. Um, so, but since then, like, for example, when we recorded the second bystander record, which is my new band, um, one of them, I'm in a band called between earth and sky, and we haven't recorded in quite some time, but, um, the second bystander record last year, we did that record over the course of a couple days. I could never, ever, ever do such a thing in the studio as record vocals for five or six hours. That would, that's unheard of. I would do five or six minutes and be, and be done. But uh, to be able to go five or six hours or longer in the studio is just a testament to whatever magic happened in, in Russia that, <laughs> that night where I finally yeah. was like, oh, I get it. You know? Yeah, dude. Uh, you know, I, I remember, <clears throat> funny enough that I mentioned Zayo. We played with Zayo twice uh, whenever they started playing again pretty hard. And uh, I remember it was the, I think the first time we played with Zayo or something. Um, before then, you know, you have the adrenaline with the crowd and everything, and that makes it a lot easier. Even if you're pushing really hard, it feels good while you're playing and then you're just shot afterwards. Being in the studio is a whole different jam because that's really where it's like, do you have any talent? Because here's your shot. <laughs> you know, like there's no adrenaline. You have to make it yourself. I'm like running in a vocal booth, like, you know, trying to hype myself up, trying to get it out. But then like I learned during the Zayo show, <clears throat> that I was like hitting these solid notes, best I'd ever sounded, right? And I wasn't pushing that hard. I was flexing my diagram a certain way. 
I know how to sing. I took vocal lessons in school back in like 2004. My mom was an incredible vocalist. Uh, when she was alive, she was incredible. I mean, like professional. Qual- Your mom is to communication as my mom was to singing. Now she usually wow. just sang like uh, like worship music. She was like the worship leader. Uh, At my grandpa's church, but people that would come from all over the world that would see her, because they would go to my grandpa's churches, like whether they're evangelists or whatever, they would see her and they'd ask her to come to their church. Like she could have easily toured these churches. Like she was so, so talented. So, like watching her, hearing her, her telling me things she did. um, I play this Zayo show and I'm just not pushing hard and I'm being very, like you said, I'm focused and I'm thinking once I, once it clicked, and I was like, oh, shit, like, if I do this, this sounds better. It's amazing because you'd think you have to push harder. Pushing harder makes it sound worse. <laughs> Way worse. Yeah, so it's like, you know, now I, it was after that Zayo show, though, where I could start kind of playing these shows back to back because I wasn't blowing my voice out. I mean, that's that's a big deal, uh, finding that thing. Um, so real quick, so, so you meet uh, Bane in Trial. Um, trial goes on. When was the last show for Trial? Well, I mean, we, we played, uh, you know, last shows in, in the, uh, in, as I remember the late nineties, but then we played additional shows, you know, which at first were reunion shows in 2005. And then we were liking playing shows and we played more shows. The last show that we played was new age records, uh, 30th anniversary, which was in Los Angeles about a year, I guess a year and a half ago, was that, or two years ago uh, at this point. Um, so that was the last time we played was in, in Los Angeles for that. And we've known Mike since he put out our second record, the foundation record, and we love him and the label. So when we were asked to play, we were honored to participate. So it was really fun. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you guys, uh, so you guys play that. When does your kind of, um, I don't know how to say this word, like kind of professional speaking, I'm not talking about spoken word. But like, yeah. you know, speaking, how did that even come to be, though? And when did that start? Because that was kind of, I think, the next big step. Like you were still playing music, of course, through that. But th- when did that start? In like the mid 2000s or something when you started speaking? Yeah. More? Yeah, it definitely did right around then. What had happened was, you know, I was making my living doing the juggling thing. And I realized <laughs> that it was it was, you know, juggling was most interesting for me when I was dressed as a jester in opera scenes. No, my <laughs> juggling was, was most interesting for me when there was ideas attached to it. Like not when I was just like doing tricks, like tricks is like, who cares? I mean, well, no, it's not who cares. It's interesting juggling as metaphor, juggling is visually fascinating, all of that. I could talk about all day long, but the, but the idea of doing like cheesy tricks for money is like, whatever. Um, what was interesting, was when I would do a trick and connect it to an idea or when I was speaking in between the tricks or having it be funny, but also be idea driven. That was most interesting to me. So then I started thinking, I wonder if I could just be kind of speaking as the driving force for this. And rather than be hired as the juggler guy, be hired as the speaker guy. I mean, that was more interesting to me. So that's what I started doing around, yeah, mid 2000s ish or so. I kind of transitioned to that quite a bit. And, uh, then spoken word came uh, came came after that came in the early two um, thousand teens as it were. Yeah, uh, you know I started you know going out and touring doing that. Yeah, I, I want to go back real quick and just say I don't mean to laugh every time you bring juggling up. I think this is really fascinating, but it's, no. I, and you're about to say like no, I get it. No, seriously, it's really fascinating to me. I just keep forgetting, <laughs> and then you bring it up, and I'm like, 
Holy shit, this dude is a juggler. Like, I can't believe how much of this consumed your life. Like, I didn't realize this was, like, your jam, dude. So, to the point where my nickname was The Juggler in Seattle. There are people in Seattle who don't refer to me when they see me as Greg. Like, even Derek Harn from HIMSA only calls me Juggler. Like, there are tons of people who only call me Juggler. And that's that's from the 90s. That was my entire existence. So when you laugh, I love it because it shows me how successful it was that I, rather than just stay the Juggler, changed and transformed a bit along the way. But I have to tell you, I mean, the juggling thing is like immensely important. And I I love it. And I always I always will in a certain regard. Uh, I should send you. The, the photo from my high school yearbook, my senior year uh, of me with my mullet and all the other students under their photo talk about what clubs and activities they were involved in for the four years of high school. But my senior year only talks about juggling. It's so ridiculous. I'm totally sending it to you. <laughs> please, I've got please. the yearbook here. I want you oh, to yeah. so badly. And I, w- I have to ask you about juggling real quick because you just touched <laughs> on it. But you were talking about juggling and attaching it to an idea. Now I love I love all like any movie listeners uh, coming in here. Uh, I, I like when I talked to Bane or Andy Williams or any of those guys. We didn't talk about movies the whole time, of course. And we will get to movies here, okay? But I have okay. to <laughs> eventually. But I have to ask you about this because I'm fascinated by people being passionate about things. So even if I don't care about what it is, or I don't maybe have. Uh, a personal attachment, like I don't have a personal attachment to juggling, but I can also yep. acknowledge that I don't understand any of the words that came out of your mouth because I can't process them because I don't know, right? So I love learning. I'm like a perpetual student. So so teach me, uh, dear teacher. And what what's juggling, how do you attach meaning? Because all when I think of juggling, let me just say this. I'll, g- I'll give you my starter kit right here. This is where I am. Uh, like I'm thinking of street performer. I'm thinking of your traditional, uh, typical clown, right? So when you say it, I'm like, there has to be more than this. And then now you just said attaching ideas and talking between. Do you like this? Is what I imagine when you talk. You get hired to come be a juggler, but it's like watching a band, but they're just watching you juggle and talk between juggle tricks or whatever. <laughs> like, like I can't picture it. Like help me picture what you're doing okay. here. Here's here's. Here's the easiest way to do it because every every event that I've done over the years has certainly been very different. There's a guy in Seattle named John Wilson. John was my theater history and performance theory professor at Cornish College of the Arts and was uh, hugely influential on me throughout my life in terms of ideas, thoughts, books, and whatnot. I used to joke, and it's not really a joke, it's true. I used to say that I'm 3% Greg, meaning I'm my own creation, 3%, and I'm an amalgam of my mom and John Wilson, 97%. Everything. (laughs) My voice, my mannerisms, everything. John and my mom. So John and I are still friends to this day. Uh, Years ago, we're walking around together talking about what have you, and John says to me, why do you think it is that people watch you juggle? And I was like, ah, oh, well, um, they think it's cool that I do these cool tricks and they're, they're impressed and blah, blah, blah. And I mean, this is like 20, 20 something years ago. And John goes, no, that's not why. Come back tomorrow and tell me why people watch you juggle. So I'm like, okay. I go away. I come back the next day. Classic like, teacher move. Classic totally, teacher move. Yeah. Totally. 
He says, like, it's like some Zen master kind of thing, right? Yes. The next day he says, so why do people watch you juggle? And I said, well, it, I, I can do something that they can't do. And, and it's impressive. He's like, no, one more shot. Come back tomorrow. So I, I, the next day I come back to John and I was like, okay, I give up. I don't know why people watch me juggle. I literally don't know why people watch me do the thing that they watch me do all the time. And John said, people watch you juggle because you are playing with elemental forces that control the bodies of the universe and in fact root us to the earth. The force of gravity is inescapable. It controls everything from our weight to the way the sun rises and sets, the moon in the sky and the tides, and you are playing with that as if it was a game. That fascination that you might be able to do such a thing, which seemingly is supernatural, who can control gravity? That's why people watch you juggle. Okay. Wow. Insert insert emoji of the mind being blown here, right? Or that just look at my me life. because my mind yeah. – I'm like sincerely <laughs> like blown away by this. You just gave meaning to the entire uh, – uh, uh, I almost said hobby, but the entire like career of juggling right now. The whole enterprise, the whole thing fell into place. So I started realizing that no matter what I say, there is an inherent fascination in the actual act and the observing. And this is like aside from – performance, performer audience interaction and relationship, which could be a whole podcast, not just an episode, but the relationship between watching the juggling and then on an inherent root level, interpreting the relationship with gravity. Honestly, we go on all day and philosophize about this. But what I realized is that whatever I'm talking about, I could connect it to that act and people would feel or understand it viscerally. It was mind-blowing. So that kind of changed the whole deal. Now, that doesn't mean that I come out on stage and I say, hi, everybody, let's talk about your relationship with your weight and gravity. <laughs> like it's, not, <laughs> it's not the way it goes down. But no matter what I'm talking about, like let's say I'm talking about creativity. There's something in the process of that act of, of juggling, which can be a, which not just a metaphor for it, but like this – this image that represents it. Well, I guess that's a metaphor, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but it, it, uh, it, 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 it ties all back to John rooting all of it to having inherent meaning, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. So what does it look like though, when you go out there and juggle and tie it to meaning is the meaning, the idea of gravity, is that the meaning you're talking about or, or like, how are you attaching meaning to that inerrant meaning? You rule. That's a great question. So you're catching me in a, in a weird moment in that for the past few years, I've, and this could be a whole other thing. I've been working on a, a book on a cultural anthropologist writing a book, his official biography, a guy named Ernest Becker. Yeah. Uh, oh, we're getting there. The, we're getting there. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> so the reason I'm saying you're catching me in a weird moment is that I've done tons less of the speaking, the juggling and whatnot uh, in the last year and a half because I've ramped up the amount that I've been uh, doing research in, in that time and, and working on the book. So I have a list of things that I want to do when the book is done. Like one of them is become an expert at Photoshop. One of them is, uh, you know, do this, do that, do this. There's a whole list. I got to pull it up. But one of them is incorporate a new keynote, which indeed does talk about gravity. And it would look like me coming on the stage talking about what is gravity and what does it relate? How does it relate to 
who we are, what we do, how do we perceive ourselves, and how does this simple action of this ball flying back and forth, how can that teach us about the relationship we have to gravity and weight, and not just physical weight, but the weight of being alive, which is a whole other, you know, shenanigans we could get into. The point is, it would look like a talk just with visual imagery attached to it, not like life goes up, life goes down, <laughs> not like that. But just something a little a little deeper than that. But that's on the to do list after. And I, well, I said Photoshop before. I'm actually getting away from Adobe because I think their idea of subscription based apps is offensive. So I'm switching to Affinity Photo. That's yeah. my little pitch for Affinity Photo, the <laughs> underdog. But um, but yeah. So anyway, point is, it looks like and will look more like a a, a, a speech and presentation that has an attached visual component. In the same way that if you watched a presentation with a video playing, it'll just be live motion video. And instead of a video playing, it'll be me throwing a machete back and forth. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I'm just so blown away uh, that you just gave so much meaning to juggling. Are, so you're like such a killer juggler. It's like... I'm this close, okay? I'm showing my fingers to him very close together. I'm this close to just being like, show me how to juggle right now. <laughs> but that would not be that interesting. We'll say that for another time. Because <laughs> technically I have seen you juggle in The Beast Within, uh, a Gabriel uh, Knight uh, mystery. Oh, it's um, interesting. <clears throat> it's interesting you mentioned that because I was actually in that video game. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> Um, so you, you, uh, you're tackling gravity with juggling and, and the meaning behind it, which is sincerely fascinating. I'm like, like you said, I feel like you and I could probably talk about any of these things for a full episode, but at what point did you start dealing with the realization that you're going to die? When did, <laughs> when did, when did Becker, uh, kind of come into your life? Cause you just brought up. Uh, writing a biography on him, yeah, um, and <clears throat> you, uh, I believe, you wrote and produced a documentary called "Flight from Death," which is also heavily inspired by Becker, if I understand correctly. Yep, uh, which I believe is on Amazon Prime right now. You can just watch I think it, it is, right now. Yeah. Um, so, you know what led what led to Becker? How how did you land there? You know, it's interesting. My my visceral gut reaction of oh god when you ask me the question is because. 10 minutes ago, you were talking, and I don't remember exactly what you were saying in the moment, and I was listening to you, but I was thinking about, it might have been when you mentioned your mom, to be totally honest, because you said when she was alive, and I thought, oh, I didn't realize that your mom had passed away. Yeah. There was a moment where I thought to myself, this rules, meaning you and me connecting here right now, because yes. listeners don't know that you and I don't talk all the time. This is the first time we've Skyped, right? This is one of our first conversations in live action, right? Yeah. We talked for maybe half an hour at the show like three years yep. ago, and yep. I've texted you maybe 10 times in the last yep. month to set this up. <laughs> like, that's literally that's right. our only interaction. Maybe that's some it. likes and Facebook comments. That's about it. That's right. So you were talking 10 minutes ago, and my mind flashed for a second to this rules. I never want this to end, meaning my friendship with you, but also my friendships, the talks, the 
experience of like wondering what DVDs are on your shelf, the fascination with the fact that you like the DVDs or the books or video games that are on your shelf. We all want this to perpetuate. I want this to perpetuate. We want this to keep going. And in an instant, I was like, oh my God, we've got to celebrate this while it's happening because this all goes away eventually. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Good time. This is where the this is where we take the you know express trip to Bummerville because we're getting yeah. into Becker. <laughs> so this is where this is where it all came from. I um, what people don't know about me, other than the fact that I was in the Beast Within Gabriel Knight too, is that <laughs> I um I know more about rare coins and coin collecting <laughs> than anyone you know in your life. I say that categorically, unquestionably as fact, okay? And okay. I'm laughing as I say it because I know that that sounds as ridiculous as the fact that I would throw a machete back and forth while quote-unquote juggling all day. Just facts. Well, we're just tacking more um, and more interesting things onto the list of mimes and juggling and games. Yep. And so, yeah, okay. so you love coins. Okay, like to the point where I can say to you, if you took the cumulative knowledge of hardcore that's in my brain and the cumulative knowledge of juggling and speaking and whatnot, it pales in comparison to my knowledge of coins, rare coins, and coin collect. It's ridiculous. Okay. It started when I was seven with an obsession that I inherited from my dad and inherited meaning like he was into coins as a kid and he mentioned it to me and I just, I just went just berserk with it. And the reason that I never talk about it, I don't even know if I've talked about it in interviews, is because in the 90s when I was living with Cynthia and I was touring quote unquote often, I thought to myself, even though I don't keep coins at the house, I thought if people know I'm on tour and they've heard me talk about coins, maybe they'll come and try to break in and steal said coins while I'm gone and that puts Cynthia in danger, so I'm never gonna talk about coins. Okay, so I never really have. Why do I bring up coins, which I could literally talk to you about nonstop for weeks and weeks and weeks and never repeat myself twice and you die of boredom within the first hour? You're shaking You your underestimate head me, dear sir. <laughs> <laughs> so I bring it up because here's little Greg. He's about 10 years old, 11 years old, collecting his coins, right? And I'm sitting around and I'm looking with fascination at coins, which represent to me permanence in a way because they are um, they're made out of metal oftentimes uh, most often they are dated so you know that this thing sitting in front of me was made in 1870 it's still sitting here in my hand even though everything else from 1870 is dead but this coin has survived and I thought about the permanence of these coins and how much I cherish them and then I thought I remember where I was sitting when I thought this in my parents place in, in Woodbury Connecticut I thought as I looked at this coin in front of me, what happens to this thing when I die? And I realized someone else someday will own this coin long after Greg is gone and they'll be reflecting on how that coin represents permanence, but I'll be the thing that was impermanent. Okay, well that ruined summer vacation, right? At that point, <laughs> like, yeah. now what happens? So uh, now what happens? And I just realized like, this is, this is not a good situation. Like, I'm not a permanent creature. So that was on my mind forever and a day. And when was this around? That, estimated. 
like like it was probably let's just call it the mid 80s. Like I might okay, have been, okay. I, you know, I, I said 10, but I might have been like 13, maybe 12. No, actually, you know what? I'm going with 10. I'm going with about oh, 10 okay. years old. OK, so, yeah, yeah this is back probably 80s. Like, yeah, when I was a kid, when okay. I was a kid. Yeah. OK, fast forward with this idea in mind, which is not unique to me. I mean, people realize that they are going to die I guess, you know, child psychologists say kids realize that, you know, when they're young, really young, three, four, five, that, you know, there is a thing called death in the world. They just don't fully grasp it yet. But I held on to this throughout my life. Graduation day from Cornish College of the Arts, 1994, John Wilson, aforementioned Zen master of the intellect, walks up to me and says, uh, hey, I've got something for you. And he hands me three books, The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. Uh, Otto Runk's Art and Artist and Man's Search for Meaning um, by Viktor Frankl. And I take these books and I do what anyone does. When someone hands you a book, you put it on your shelf to read later. Well, um, John saw me a year later. He said, how are you doing with those books I gave you? I said, well, yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, you're scared of those guys, aren't you? That's all he said. It made me so upset and frustrated that he told me I was scared of these guys that I said, OK, I'm going to read these books. So I started with uh, Man's Search for Meaning by, by Viktor Frankl. I read it. It was mind blowing. It eventually became the song When There's Nothing Left to Lose by Trial years later. Uh, that was the, the huge motivation for the song. Um, and I tried to read Art and Artist by Otto Rank. It's an extraordinarily difficult book to read. And my, my copy is actually here sitting right next to me. And I write on the inside cover of books that I read, the date that I start reading the book. And you can see from my notes that it says 1997, then that's crossed out. It says 2000, that's crossed out. And over the years, up until a year ago, when I finally read this thing. But then I read The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. And that book really struck me. I read it while I was on tour with Trial at one point. And that was that was the game changer. Not that it's life canon, right? Not that it's a Bible. It's just a really interesting book and offers some interesting perspectives on on death and our relationship to it. So that's when that all happened. It started with John Wilson, and then John and I having conversations about it over the years, reading the book. Um, that's where it all developed from there. Wow. Okay. So when when did you start? Hold on, I'm actually just gonna look this up instead of asking you. Okay, so you you did uh, Flight from Death though in 2003. So you'd already mm-hmm. been into Becker for uh, late 90s, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the late 90s, yeah. <clears throat> okay, so so you know we'll say five six years prior to making this film, uh, what led to you like thinking about Becker and 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 all of these like philosophical existential ideas and then wanting to put them into essentially a documentary, the flight from death documentary in 2003. What was the journey there? Okay. So here's, here's how this happened. So I, I I read, read the Becker book and I'd incorporated as I was reading it, some of his ideas into lyrical ideas and whatnot. I get home from that tour and I look up on whatever search engine existed back then, Alta Vista or whatever, Ernest Becker. I found that there was an Ernest Becker Foundation in Seattle. I was like, what the heck? I live in the city where they study these ideas? I wrote to them and I said, my name is Greg Benick. 
I'm in this punk band. I'm interested in Becker's ideas. Um, who could I talk to about Becker's ideas? And they wrote me back and they said, well, why don't you come to our conference? It's coming up in a month or whatever in Seattle. I was like, oh my God, whole Becker conference. So I go to this conference with the aforementioned fish fan, <laughs> Cynthia. We get to the conference. We're sitting in the back of the room. There's all these academics standing up, delivering papers and talking and whatnot. And I uh, am just sitting there. Well, uh, the elderly director of the foundation, this guy named Neil Elgy, who just this last year passed away. Neil Elgy stands up in front of the group and thanks the previous speaker, whoever that was, I don't quite remember, for giving a presentation about the academic side of Becker. And he looks at the room and he says, thank you so much for that presentation. Is Greg Benick here? And I remember I turned to my, my girlfriend, I turned to Cynthia and I was like, what? And he says it again, is Greg Benick here? And Cynthia hits my arm and she's like, he said your name, raise your hand. I'm like, uh, so I raise my hand and Neil goes, Greg, why don't you come up here and tell us about your punk rock band? Holy shit. Why? <laughs> because he'd gotten the email, which yeah. said I'm interested in Becker's ideas. So I'm like, why though? You're right. Why am I going to stand in front of this room of academics? So I walk to the front of the room. I look, I turn around at the podium. I'm looking out at a room of, of, PhDs and professors and whatnot. And I thought to myself, oh my God. So I said, my name is Greg Benick. I recently read The Denial of Death. I've been working on some new lyrics. I want to um, I want to tell you about them. And, uh, and I've been influenced by Becker for a while and blah, blah, blah. And I said, let me recite to you some lyrics that I've written that have been inspired by Becker's work. And uh, if you're interested, I can I can send you a, a, a CD when it's available of, of this song that I'm working on. And I said to them, uh, the wreckage of humanity has been strewn across the land and now the hour of desperation is at hand. And I recited the lyrics to Trial's song, Reflections. And at the end, the last lines of which are deeply inspired by Becker's ideas, you know, the idea that we want something more amidst the... Um, the, the, the chaos of existence, I get to the last line of the song, just reciting it, and we want something more. And I said, if anyone's interested, please hand me a business card. And I thought to myself, oh my God, these people are gonna like crucify me. Yeah. I'm not gonna make it out of your life. I had 14 business cards in my hand by the time I sat back down next to Cynthia. Like literally in the room, people are handing them out to the aisles. I want your CD when it comes, I want your CD, I want your CD. And from that moment started an interaction between me and people who are far more academic, intelligent, well-read, well-versed in philosophy, psychology, religion, anthropology, theology, ontology, all the ologies. That's when it started. It was like late, late 90s, right? When the trial CD came out and, or the trial record as it were, but it came out on CD. And I remember getting my hands on tons of these CDs and send, sending them out to college professors around the United States. That was the first round. I, I sent one to my, my parents, my brother, and all these professors who specialized in Becker's work. So that's where it rolled from, was that initial day where I was called in front of the audience by Neil Elgy, this you know, patriarch, as it were, of the Ernest Becker Foundation. That's like both the coolest and scariest story I've ever <laughs> heard because there is that growing fear of like 
being somewhere where you know the person speaking, which you didn't in this case, which even makes it worse, but maybe you know someone and then they call you up for an impromptu speech, which <laughs> I might be fairly skilled. Like I might be able to do that. Maybe like, okay. So my, my grandma, uh, not, I mean, we're already in Bummerville, I guess. So, cause we're going to be talking about death. So my grandma died. Um, the end of October. Okay. She died mm. from COVID complications. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. So uh, I appreciate it. Um, so I show up and my grandpa asks me like an hour before the service, Hey, would you say something? Would you go up there with me and say something? So of course, I mean, there's really no risk here. I know most of the people that are going to be there. Uh, you know, uh, it's not, I'm not worried about it, but you know, my mind starts kind of working though. And, and you still, no matter how skilled you are, you get, a certain level of anxiety about it because you, you like now it's on, right? Like it's a thing that you've agreed to. There is kind of a social contract there. Now, in my case, there was a familial contract that I've like kind of made. And so I'm going to do this thing. Now, of course it was fine. Like I didn't, ha I didn't bother me, but there were, t it's like being in class and your teacher calls on you and says, Hey, why don't you tell us about these ideas? I took a media law class in my undergrad. It's the hardest class in the whole department. Uh, cause I was studying film then. And, uh, the average grade was a C. Most people fail out of it and take it more than once. It was just, uh, notorious, like infamous rather for, for being the hardest class. Uh, because it, there's a lot of law involved. You have to understand like the legal aspects of filmmaking and copywriting and trademarking and infringements and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I took this class three times. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> I was not a great undergrad. Okay. Grad school was a different story, but the undergrad part, not great. Um, so anyways, uh, but <clears throat> the first time I took it, I took it with the quote unquote good professor, right? The other one was mm -hmm. an excellent professor, but he was a lawyer. And he was a hard ass. And he will yell at you and cuss at you and throw you out if you didn't read something. Like, he was that guy. So um, there was Umansky. That was him. But I had the other guy the first time. And I was stoked, dude. But the problem is he would have note cards with every person's name on it. And if no one raised their hand to answer a question, he would walk up to the front row, fan them out, and say, pull one. And then he would call upon the person and say, all right, if you read this, Tell us about this, like, if you've read it, very clear thing to tell us about. So, of course, when I get called the one time, luckily only once in the semester, I'm like, you know, I just, I don't remember that part. And then when I, like, went back to read it for a test, I'm like, oh, shit, that's, like, the whole thing. I should, <laughs> like, I totally outed myself. So my point is, I can't imagine how stressful it was that you're going here to, like, try to understand this thing. You're in front of all these people smarter than you. I, I've presented at conferences, and I'm like, I'm a grad student. At one point, I mean, I, I went to a conference when I was an undergrad, too, and I'm like, I'm going to talk about, like, Kubrick's The Shining, and I'm like, there are, like, 30 people in here that know vastly more than I do. Like, yep. there, if you ask me a question, I can't answer it, so please don't, <laughs> you know, like, it's like, just let me get my spiel out, and, you know, you can go. So I can't even imagine what it's like getting in front of a room of what I at least imagine is, like, hundreds of academics you know what I mean? Yeah. How, how many people were there, would you say? Was there like might have been, I, I'd say about 100, 120. But, you know, I've, I've, I've definitely had that situation happen. Uh, I showed Flight from Death, the documentary. I mean, I've showed it around the world, but I showed it in London at uh, a college in London to their philosophy department at one point when I was on a tour. And it was a room full of philosophy PhD students. And again, I don't have an advanced degree, right? I barely made it through Cornish College of the Arts. I don't have an advanced degree. I show this film on Becker's work. I get done. 
and we had an hour and a half or so set aside for Q&A or an hour set aside for Q&A. And the first person raises his hand and he says, in your film, there is a quote by Jean-Paul Sartre, yet a less Sartian film I am uninclined to find comments. And I thought, I'm dead. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not going to survive this hour. I don't even understand the goddamn question. Yeah, yeah. So that's that has played itself out a hundred times over the years, a thousand times. Um, but I think that, you know, in those moments, again, like we were talking about before about connecting with the audience, I think you can connect with the audience as best you possibly can and hope that they're going to be um, willing to connect too. Because remember, it's a relationship, right? So even if the topic is um, uh, video games and movies and hardcore to hardcore kids, and you walk out on stage and say, hey, I want to talk to you about all these games I bought this year and movies, and you're all hardcore kids and I'm a hardcore kid, if they're not willing to be in the relationship, you're going to have a really hard time. That's yeah. true of our personal relationships too, right? So, you know, it's it, you've got to be... You're in it or you're out of it. And if they're in it, then you can make that connection happen. And that is the end of part one of my conversation with Greg Bennick. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. He's going to be back next week uh, so we can talk some more and really dig into the movie side of things eventually uh, in that conversation. We have a real hard time shutting up because we enjoy speaking with each other so much, like talking with one another. It's uh, He's a really great guy. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, uh, definitely come back next week. We'll have Greg Bennick, uh, the following week, like I said, Jake Bottoliri is going to be coming back. We're going to be doing part two of our Cassavetes marathon where we watch a woman under the influence and the killing of a Chinese bookie. And then on that day, we will talk uh, a little bit about those movies. We'll take the whole episode to cover those two and that will finish out the year. And by that point, I will have some awesome updates about what you can expect next year. Uh, with Medium Cool, a movie podcast. So, hey, stick with us. Uh, please find us on social media. It's Medium Cool Pod, facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram. You'll find us and at Medium Cool Pod on Instagram. You can also at Austin Glidden on Twitter. Or I said Instagram. It's at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. Also, it's Medium Cool Pod everywhere. I don't even know why I'm correcting myself. God. Anyways, the point is you can find me at Austin Glidden on Twitter as well hang out with me uh we can talk on there uh, any comments questions concerns feedback whatever you have you can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com and give us all your feedback there as well um you know we're going to be having some polls coming up once we get through uh some of these interviews and everything we're going to be talking uh we're gonna have a lot of awesome stuff to talk about at the turn of the year and i'll be updating you as the episodes go um and like i said please feel free to watch a woman under the influence or the killing of a chinese bookie before that episode comes out so you can kind of be in the know with us and hear what we think and and maybe you can con contribute some really awesome uh, insight prior to on social media again medium cool pod on like the three major platforms I mentioned and you can hit us up and, and comment uh, or, or, or send us a message or whatever give us your feedback and um, you know unless you say otherwise if it's if it's awesome we might even just uh, read it on air who knows I don't even know we're wild who even knows what's gonna happen I don't but 
I will when it's done, and so will you, because we're going to let you hear it. Uh, I don't even know what I'm saying anymore, because it is time for me to take a nap, apparently. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Greg Bennick. Um, we will be back next week for part two. I just want to thank you guys again for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast on wherever you're getting this podcast. Good night. Good luck. Take it easy. Take it easy.